0: Blink. This is Mountain Hippie Radio. Welcome to Hippie Church. I'm your host, Allie Wags. Thanks for being here. On today's show, we're going to talk about freaks and freak. Flags. We'll talk about the origin of the term freak flag, where it came from, what its roots are, what it means, and why you should absolutely be waving your freak flag high. Today's episode is a radio edit of the podcast, which means I have... A companion playlist in the show notes if you want to pull one of those playlists up and as we go along I will give you a cue to pause my words and listen to the song that I just talked about if you don't want to do that ignore it completely and listen to the podcast from start to finish just as you would if no music is involved so what is a freak flag where did that term come from The term freak flag first appeared in a Jimi Hendrix song called If Six Was Nine. It gained further popularity a couple of years later when David Crosby and Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young came out with the song Almost Cut My Hair. According to the internet, a freak flag is the way in which a person demonstrates unconventional or unrestrained behavior. Essentially, the way in which you are different from everyone else. The way in which you are uniquely you. For Hendrix and Crosby at the time, in the late 60s, the freaks were long-haired hippies. Members of the counterculture movement who felt the need to express themselves in ways not considered appropriate at the time. According to a 1969 article in Life magazine, the counterculture had its sacraments in sex, drugs, and you guessed it, rock and roll. And the tipping point for this counterculture movement was the Monterey Pop Festival. On June 16th, 17th, and 18th of 1967, upwards of 100,000 freaks gathered on the Northern California coast for a little peace, love, and flowers. I would argue that event was a collective freak flag waving, if you will. On today's show, we're going to celebrate the freaks and the freak flags. I'll suggest some of my favorite music from Monterey Pop, and we'll hear some stories from musicians who played there, people who raised their hand and their flag and said, this is me, take it or leave it. Pause this recording right now and play Almost Cut My Hair by Crosby Stills, Nash & Young. God, I love that song. It's like Crosby is reaching into himself and retching his own inner conflict out for all of us to see. Should I cut my hair? A decision that felt really, really important at the time. But ultimately, the details of Crosby's situation are irrelevant. We're not talking about long hair here. What we're talking about is Crosby's dilemma. And that dilemma is as old as the human experience. What is my relationship to the tribe? Should I fit in or should I be myself? And of course, those ideas are not mutually exclusive, but it feels like they are. Because we as human beings have a tendency to look outside ourselves for approval, for validation, when the answers are really inside us. You remember that part of you, that part that's connected to source energy, the one that created a you on the exact date and time of your birth? Yeah, that one. Well, it made you exactly how you are with all of your unique quirks and peccadilloes on purpose. You were supposed to go to those parents in that body, in this time and space. Why? Because source energy was missing one of you. On June 16th, 17th, And 18th of 1967, concert organizers did something unprecedented, unthinkable. They gathered some of the biggest rock bands around and created a rock and roll music festival. On June 16th, 17th, and 18th of 1967, bands like the Mamas and the Papas, Simon and Garfunkel, Janis Joplin, Steve Miller Band, Jefferson Airplane, Otis Redding, Buffalo Springfield, The Who, The Dead, and Jimi Hendrix all gathered together for a weekend of music. It's easy to look back at Monterey and not see it for the revolutionary act it was looking back at the Monterey Pop Festival after Woodstock, after Lala, after Coachella, and it's just another music festival. But at the time, it was a huge deal. In the early 60s, American culture was pretty vanilla. We were twisting the night away, and Davy Jones was a daydream believer, Mrs. Brown had a very lovely daughter, that sort of thing was going on. Motown, jazz, folk, they are considered the only acceptable forms of musical expression. That's what was normal. That's what was baseline. That's what was status quo. And one day, some hooligans, some weirdos, some freaks decided to organize a music festival for rock and roll. Music festivals at the time were only for proper forms of musical expression. Not for that new-fangled racket that you played with your delinquent cousin in the garage. Organizers saw it differently, though. They understood the importance of what was happening in the counterculture music scene at the time and knew a festival was a way to elevate rock and roll to the same vaulted status as other art forms like jazz. They understood the meaning of what was happening around them, even if their predominant culture did not. As a result of this vision, white audiences would meet a soul singer named Otis Redding. As a result of this vision, those outside the San Francisco rock scene would meet a blues singer from Texas by the name of Janis Joplin. As a result of this vision, American audiences would meet a young guitar player named Jimi Hendrix. And music, it would never be the same. I want to talk about Jimi Hendrix right now. In Seattle, Washington, in the 1950s, Jimi Hendrix was just a kid on a playground. Jimmy was a kid on a playground at Horace Mann Elementary School, where he always carried around a broom. And he carried that broom with him on the playground and in the classroom. He carried it at home and pretty much anywhere he could. But Jimi Hendrix didn't hold the broom like a broom. Pushing the handle, allowing the bottom to sweep the floor. No. Jimi Hendrix held it with the handle in his right hand and the brush in his left. Just like a guitar. And Jimmy took his broom guitar with him like a security blanket. He dragged it around for over a year, even attracting the attention of the school's social worker, who on his behalf submitted a request for school funding to get a, gu- get a guitar for Jimmy because they were afraid that him not having one would cause psychological damage. The school said no. His father said no. There would be no guitar for Jimmy. At least not until 1958, when, at the age of 15, Jimi Hendrix acquired his first acoustic guitar for $5, and he played it constantly. He watched other players, he listened to Muddy Waters, to B.B. King, to Howling Wolf. He started his first band. The only problem was you couldn't hear Jimmy over the rest of the band because he was playing an acoustic guitar. So his father finally relented and bought him an electric guitar, which got stolen backstage at a gig almost as soon as he got it. Jimmy would have to get another guitar. A couple of years later, while serving in the Army, Jimi Hendrix sent a letter back home to his father, asking him to send him the guitar. I really need it now, he said. When he got his guitar in the mail, his obsession with it actually created a conflict in his army unit. He regularly neglected his army duties to play guitar. He was teased and mocked by his peers. At one point, they hid his guitar and made him beg to get it back. In 1967, before Monterey Pop, Jimi Hendrix and the Jimi Hendrix experience weren't well known in the States. But that wasn't the case in the UK. Their first album, Are You Experienced? spent 33 weeks on the charts in the UK, peaking at number two. They were second only to Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. In fact, Jimi Hendrix only got on the bill of Monterey because Paul McCartney insisted on it. He agreed to join the board of the festival as long as they let Jimi play. So Monterey Pop was Jimi's American debut of sorts. A way to introduce him and his band to the Simon and Garfunkel lovin' twistin' the night away, doo-wop, doo-wop, vanilla American public. And from that very first sound of reverb, we witnessed something that had never been seen before. Because this time, Jimmy didn't just have a broom. Hit pause now and cue up Hendrix's performance at Monterey Pop of Like a Rolling Stone. At yet another school, also in the 1950s, Thomas Jefferson High School, to be exact, in Port Arthur, Texas, Janice Joplin was being tormented and teased. Her conservative classmates taunted her. They called her names like pig. And whore. They, including fellow classmate Dallas football coach Jimmy Johnson, even had nicknames for her pubic hair. Port Arthur was a conservative oil town in Texas, a place where being normal was considered ideal and where conforming was the norm. This was not the time nor the place to be yourself. And Janice was different. She wore different clothes than her classmates. She painted. She read Jack Kerouac. She supported the civil rights movement. She didn't like football. She was a freak. And the torment was relentless. It didn't stop, actually, when she went to college. At the University of Texas at Austin, as a part of a school-wide annual fundraiser, she was, and I swear this is true, voted ugliest man on campus. Yeah, apparently each fraternity would donate $5 to nominate a candidate for ugliest man and the proceeds would go to charity. In years past, a big old linebacker would win and everyone would have a jolly laugh about it and the charities would enjoy their money. But in 1962, someone anonymously entered Janice's name and then posted pictures of her all over campus. And she won. When we show up as our authentic selves, there are going to be people who do not understand us. There are going to be people who do not like us. There are going to be people who do not love us. When we show up as our authentic selves, there are going to be people on the sidelines with an opinion. That certainly was the case with Janice Joplin and it is the case for you and for me. The question is, who are you going to listen to? Who gets to be heard the loudest? The part of you inside who knows of your perfection and created you exactly that way for a reason or someone else. Who gets to decide your worth? You or them? Janis Joplin came alive on stage and Monterey Pop was no exception. Watching her performance, particularly of ball and chain, you see how powerful being in alignment with your truest self is. Janice, in that moment on stage, is not thinking about the dicks at her high school or whether or not those shoes make her look fat. Janice is fully and completely present in that moment. On stage, she is allowing source energy to run to her and through her and you're no different. There is something you do right now in the life you currently have that makes you come alive. It could be skiing or singing or reading stories to your kids. It's that thing that makes you feel so good that you don't give a flying fuck about the opinions of those around you, at least not in that moment. It's the thing that lights you up in a way that makes you want to carry around a broom guitar despite all of the people staring at you or believing that you're on the brink of psychosis. What is that thing for you? How can you do more of it? How can you carve out some time in this day, this week, or this year to do more of it? Maybe you're like me and you spent a long time not doing things that light you up. That's okay. It's not too late. We can figure this out together. If you want to experience what it's like to be fully present, I invite you to listen to Janice Joplin perform Ball and Chain at the Monterey Pop Festival now. Weeks before her untimely death at 27. Janice Joplin would go back to Port Arthur, Texas for her 10-year high school reunion. Her classmates expected the mild and introverted Janice they knew from high school, but instead they were met with someone who not only overcame the torment, but had defied and broken all of the rules they held so dear. Janice served as a living, breathing example of how life could be different. Surrounded by paparazzi and wearing purple and pink feathers in her hair, Janice took questions from reporters at a press conference before the event. They asked her what it was like to be back, what she remembered from her high school days, that sort of thing. And when they realized Janice's high school experience was extremely different from her current reality, a reporter asked the question, what changed? Janice said... I got liberated. I started singing, and singing makes you want to come out rather than draw in. In watching the press conference, it feels like Janice is reconciling two identities. The one she had in high school and her new rock and roll persona. In answering questions like, did you entertain in high school and go to football games, a previously bubbly Janice stutters and pauses. It's a bit uncomfortable, actually. It almost feels like she thinks she's in the back of homeroom again. Were you asked to prom? A reporter asked. No, I wasn't, she said. She stutters a bit, struggles to find the right words. I don't think they wanted to take me. It would be disingenuous to suggest that Janice wasn't hurt by her classmates. That is, of course, not true. But what I think is interesting about her story is the way it, it exposes in strong, vibrant images how one human being navigated the human dilemma of fitting in. For me, Janice Joplin had the courage to do something I did not. When that teacher on that playground years ago and all the stupid teachers who followed told me to be smaller, told me to run slower, told me to be quieter, I listened. In that moment on that playground, when that teacher suggested I run slower for those boys, I chose to give the teacher's opinion more weight than the joy I felt while running. In that moment, I prioritized the small feelings of others over the big ones inside of me. But that wasn't true for Janice. She was literally surrounded by people who told her explicitly with their words and implicitly with their actions that she needed to be different, that she needed to conform, and she refused. Janice Joplin is quoted as saying, "'I love being on stage. Everything else is just waiting.'" And she's right. Everything we do in this physical experience that doesn't bring us joy, that isn't what we're meant to do, is just waiting. My question to you is, what are you waiting for? How long are you going to wait? Who does this life belong to? You or them? Your purpose on this physical planet is to become the truest expression of you. Not her, not them, not him. How can you start to listen to that voice inside you, even when the outside voices are super loud and call you a pig? You have to turn your attention inward. You have to start prioritizing the feelings inside you over the small feelings of others. And what's great about shifting our desire for validation, our natural desire for validation inward, is that it turns the rest of it into white noise. The outside voices aren't so loud anymore. Their words become garbled. You can't really understand them. You're at a different frequency. But more important than that, when you turn your attention inward, you experience the sensation of being truly loved for exactly who you are. Because that inward connection is its is just that. It's love. And that love comes directly from the source who made you. Yes, Janis Joplin was deeply wounded by her classmates. And I'm sure Jimi Hendrix didn't appreciate the hazing from his fellow soldiers. But what the two of them knew then and what I'm learning now is the other stuff. The being on stage, the learning how to play guitar with your teeth, the stuff that lights you up, that matters more than the rest of it. And that is your ticket to everything that you want. If you can lean into that, the rest of it sorts itself out. If you need some inspiration, I would suggest you pause this recording and play another round of Jimi Hendrix, this time, if six was nine. Just before the Monterey Pop Festival, Jimi Hendrix bought a new guitar. And the night before Monterey, he took that guitar and hand painted it with nail polish, giving it a swirly, psychedelic design. He didn't play the new guitar during his set at Monterey Pop. He instead waited until the last song to bring it out. This is for everyone, he said, into the mic before he put his guitar down on stage, kissed its neck, sprayed lighter fluid all over it, and lit it ablaze. Hendrix then knelt down over his newly painted guitar and coaxed the flames higher and higher with his fingers. Jimmy would say later, I decided to destroy my guitar at the end of a song as a sacrifice. You sacrifice things you love, I love my guitar. There is a lot of speculation and stories surrounding why Jimmy lit his new guitar on fire. Some say it was some sort of pissing contest between him and Pete Townsend of The Who, who were also playing the show. Apparently, neither Jimmy nor Pete wanted to follow the other. Nobody wanted to be the closing act, at least not for the other one. And it is true, Jimmy had just seen The Who's set, which did involve some smoke bombs and Pete Townsend smashing his guitar into little bits. And while I'm not going to downplay good old-fashioned rock and roll machismo, I can't help but think about Jimmy's broom guitar. And his first acoustic. And the electric that got stolen. Yes, this man was a legend, but he was also just a kid inside. A kid on a playground with a broom guitar. A kid who hand-painted a design on his guitar the night before. You sacrifice things you love. I love my guitar. 14 years after the Monterey Pop Festival, Tom Petty heard that Janis Joplin quote about waiting, and while he didn't remember the exact words, he knew the feeling, and he agreed. Waiting was, in fact, the hardest part. On May 5th, 1981, six months before my birth and eight years before I would purchase full moon fever with my own babysitting money, Tom Petty wrote a song inspired by that Janis Joplin quote. You being you isn't just about you. It's about all of us. You were given that weird assortment of quirks and nuances for a reason. There is a you sized gap in this universe that cannot be filled by anyone else. Source energy, that which created you, knows you're worthy. It knows you're perfect. It knows because it specifically made you exactly that way. There is a gap in this world that only you can fill. That's what matters. The rest of it, the old beliefs, the outdated stories, the shit people say, it just doesn't matter. As humans, we want to make it more complicated than it is. We want to justify and explain our existence to those around us, but there's no need. You are worthy without justification. You are worthy without explanation. So go ahead. Raise your freak flag high. Raise your freak flag high so it encourages others to do the same. Raise your freak flag high because it feels amazing when you do so. Raise your freak flag high so you too can experience what it is like to have source energy coursing to you and through you. Raise your freak flag high because you have no choice. That flag is why you are here. And when you raise your flag, don't worry about anyone else. Don't get mad if they don't understand you. It's not their fault. You are, in fact, an original being, an original, uniquely authentic being. No one's ever seen a you before. Not even you. When you step into your own authentic light, people are going to be curious At first, they might not understand because you, in all of your glory, have never been seen before. Raise your flag high because it's all that matters. Be uniquely you because that's what you came for. And the rest of it, it's just waiting. That's our show for today. Check out The Waiting by Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers on your way out. Until next time. Blink. This is Mountain Hippie Radio.